Welcome to EdView 360. Comprehension is not just a matter of reading, it is inextricably linked to learning. The more you learn about the world, the better reader you are, the better comprehender you are. Knowledge of the topic doesn't just help you understand what you're reading, it also helps you acquire new information about the topic. The kids who start out with less knowledge and vocabulary are going to be limited to simpler texts and they are going to be less likely to acquire new information from those texts. And unless schools step in and start building their knowledge and vocabulary, those kids who start out behind fall farther and farther behind every year. You just heard Natalie Wexler, an education journalist. She is the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, and is our guest today on EdView 360. Here's your host, Pam Austin. This is Pam Austin. Welcome back to the EdView 360 podcast series. We are so excited to have you back with us. I'm conducting today's podcast from my native New Orleans, channeling a heart of Voyager Soapless Learning in Dallas, Texas. Today, we are honored to have with us Natalie Wexler, educational journalist and author of The Knowledge Gap, recently released on August 4th in paperback. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for joining us today. We are so pleased to have you with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yes. So you have quite a distinguished career in education. Tell us a bit about yourself how you got started in education? Well, um, education has been an interest of mine, I'd say for the past 10 years uh, or so. I mean, my mother was a teacher. I, you know, I've I've been a student. I've always had some interest in education, but um, I I got interested. I live in Washington, D.C., and there is a lot of education reform activity here. Almost half the kids are in charter schools. And about 10 years ago, I just got very interested. It seemed like an incredibly important issue to me and, and specifically what has been called the achievement gap, essentially the gap in test scores and other education outcomes between students at the upper and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And um, I had a background in journalism and uh, saw that there was a lot of stuff going on that really wasn't getting covered by the the news media. Um, And so I started writing about it. And um, I also did that because for me, writing about something is a way of really figuring it out and learning about it. And um, so I was sort of killing two birds there. Um, And I stumbled across, I was writing about what was going on locally, but I came to realize, and I think we'll talk about this uh, in a minute, uh, that there was a big issue that that was underlying a lot of the other problems we see in education that wasn't really getting talked about. And that was really more of a national issue. So um, I stopped writing about things locally and started writing more uh, on a more national level. Your new book, The Knowledge Gap, released in paperback on August 4th, reiterating that What drew you to writing this book and why is it titled The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System? Well, um, so as I said, I was trying to figure out, like, why is there this gap? And like many people, 
I was focusing on high school because that's where everything seemed to fall apart. Uh, that's where the test scores were lowest and, and stubborn and the gap was widest and the kids seemed disengaged. And, you know, everybody for 30 years or more has been asking, what is the problem with high school? And that was the question I was asking. And then somebody a veteran educator explained to me, and I'm not sure I would have figured this out on my own because it just really, in a way, it was right in front of me, but I wasn't seeing it. The problem, what she explained was the problems that become so apparent, so obvious in high school, don't begin in high school. And actually they have a lot of their roots in elementary school, which, you know, I had been told and I, and it seemed to me that it was the bright spot in education reform. And that's where the test scores seemed to be improving. Um, but, and I was not the first one to discover this. Other people I eventually realized had been concerned about this for a while, but the way we teach elementary school and specifically the way we teach reading um, is really setting kids up for failure later on. Because, and I'm specifically talking about the way we approach reading comprehension. We have a lot of problems with the way we teach the other aspect of reading, decoding, but, um, and there's, there's been more attention paid to the, you know, the, the phonics versus whole language debate, that kind of thing. But this, read the reading comprehension approach, um, I would say the problems with that are even more widespread and better hidden. And the problems really are that it is approached as a, as, a, as if the reading comprehension was a set of skills or strategy, comprehension skills and strategies. And, you know, there are, are a whole bunch of them finding the main idea, making inferences, uh, comparing and contrasting, et cetera. And the theory is that if kids just practice those skills on books that are basically easy enough for them to read on their own, uh, and they just get better and better at, say, finding the main idea, that uh, later on they'll be able to use that skill to build knowledge, acquire knowledge from their own reading. Um, so they'll be able to find the main idea of it'll maybe a passage on an end of the year reading test, or maybe a textbook in high school. And so uh, it really, there's not much attention paid to the content of what kids are reading and not much effort to uh, have them acquire any particular information or knowledge about things like history or geography or science. And in fact, especially in the last 20 years and reading in math scores have become so important in a lot of schools and especially schools where test scores are low, uh, there's been a real marginalization of those subjects like social studies and, and the arts and science, because the idea is we've really got to focus on these reading comprehension skills. That's what's being tested. And the thing is, that doesn't match up with what cognitive scientists have discovered about how reading comprehension actually works. Um, what they've discovered is that reading comprehension really is not a skill like riding a bike, you just keep practicing it and you get better at it and you can you know, get on any bike and ride it. You can apply your skill at finding the main idea to any passage. What is more important than some kind of abstract skill is how much the reader knows about the topic. The more you know about the topic you're reading about, the easier it is for you to do things like find the main idea or under just understand it and acquire new knowledge from what you're reading. And what that means is that what we sh if we want to boost kids reading comprehension, we should be doing the opposite of what we've been doing. Um, we should be immersing those kids in knowledge of the world, academic knowledge, history, geography, science, et cetera, um, from as early as possible. Um, and 
we're not doing that. And that really is lies at the root of so many other problems that we see. All right. So I'll add just hearing um, your comments here, Natalie. And, I'm, and then the question that really came to mind is always setting kids up for success, because as you said, comprehension doesn't just happen. We have to give students something in order to latch on to an understanding and gain that new knowledge, that meaning from text. You know, there's a large part of the book um, in regards to building knowledge and how snowballing knowledge contributes to what we call the Matthew effect. Tell us what, what the Matthew effect is. Tell us a little bit more about it and its connection to the knowledge gap. Sure. Yeah. The the Matthew effect is a reference to um, the gospel of St. Matthew and specifically to the line um, that can be translated as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And uh, this has been applied to to reading um, to explain what what happens as kids go through school. Basically, the idea is that the kids who start out with more academic knowledge of knowledge of the world and sophisticated vocabulary. Uh, They're the rich and they get richer because they are able to, from the beginning, to read more complex text. And they're also able to acquire more additional knowledge, additional information, vocabulary from what they're reading, because knowledge of the topic doesn't just help you understand what you're reading. It also helps you acquire new information about the topic. And that then they've got even more knowledge and vocabulary. And so they can then read something even more sophisticated and acquire yet more knowledge and vocabulary. And so it's kind of a virtuous cycle for them. But the kids who start out with less knowledge and vocabulary, especially in our system, which, which you know, is left this leveled reading system, which limits kids to books that they can read themselves. The kids who are starting out with less knowledge and vocabulary are gonna be limited to simpler texts, and they are gonna be less likely to acquire new information from those texts. Uh, you know, it's been said knowledge is like Velcro. It sticks best to other related knowledge. So they don't have that other, half of the Velcro, and they, unless schools step in and start building their knowledge and vocabulary, those kids who start out behind fall farther and farther behind every year. Um, and, you know, so what happens really, school is supposed to, you know, uh, reverse and address the inequities that kids bring with them to school. But what we've been doing is just making those inequities worse. Those kids are falling farther and farther behind every year they stay in school relative to their more advantaged peers. And this this narrow curriculum, this focus on reading and math that I mentioned, that continues sometimes, often I would say in schools where test scores are low, through middle school. So kids can get to high school without ever having had any systematic exposure to history or geography or science or anything but reading and math. And, you know, I mean, teachers in high poverty schools, and it's not just high poverty schools, but I think that's where you see the problem in its its starkest terms. So teachers have told me they've had kids at all levels of ability, but they have also told me it's not uncommon to get kids arriving at high school and even leaving high school who really don't know some very basic things, who don't know the difference between a city and a state or a country and a continent, who can't find the United States on a map of the world or their hometown on a map of the United States, and who really don't have a sense of history, a sense of historical chronology. Um, And yet, 
they're expected to read and understand, you know, a textbook on world history. And uh, and it is not that these kids can't learn those things. They're perfectly capable of learning those things. It is just that no one has taught them those things. And it is unrealistic to expect them to learn all of those things in the four years that they're in high school. It can be done, but it's really, really difficult. Right, exactly. You illustrated so well the value of that act academic language. I love your Velcro analogy, by the way. <laughs> well, I can't claim credit for it. I stole it from somebody else, but I'm glad you like it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. In your article featured in The Atlantic, elementary education has gone terribly wrong. You mentioned a little girl who can't read the word Brazil, but she's given a task to answer reading comprehension questions about it. The little girl was drawing clowns on her paper because she couldn't read the direction, which was to draw conclusions. With these types of academic misunderstandings and misconceptions, why is the focus so targeted on reading comprehension rather than basic reading skills? Yeah, that that was really, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a comical story in a way, but it's really also a heartbreaking story that this was a first grader who had been, she didn't even know that she'd had this sheaf of papers face down on her desk that she was supposed to be reading, which was a long article about Brazil. And she had this, I, I walked into this classroom um, and and I noticed I'd been there for 10 minutes. I noticed this little girl was drawing cl- stick figures the whole time I was there. So after 10 minutes or so, I, I knelt down and said, you know, what are you drawing? And she said, oh, I'm drawing clowns. And I said, well, why are you drawing clowns? And she, she pointed to this piece of paper that she was drawing on that had running down the left side of it, a list of reading comprehension skills and strategies. And one of them was draw conclusions. And when she said, she said, you see, it says right here, draw clowns. And she pointed to draw conclusions. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, there are two different things going on there. One was that she she couldn't read these words. Um, but even if she'd been able to read those words, uh, you know, if you'd have never heard of Brazil and you can decode, even if you can decode that word, you're not going to be able to draw conclusions about an article about a place you know nothing about. Um, I think, you know, we we have uh screwed up, as I said, on both aspects of reading, on the decoding side, as well as the comprehension side. Um, I think there is, um, you know, I think what's going on on the decoding side is that teachers often feel that they are teaching phonics. They, they've they've heard that's a good thing to do and they're covering it. But, uh, and this, I'm drawing on the work of another education journalist here named Emily Hanford, who has um, had a series of radio documentaries about how decoding is taught. And often what happens is teachers have not, guys, this is not the fault of individual teachers, let me be clear. They haven't gotten adequate training in how to teach decoding. And uh They'll they'll mention phonics, but they may be teaching it in a an unsystematic manner, sort of as things come up, and and that's been shown not to work very well. And they also may be encouraging kids to guess at words, um, because that's how they've been they've been trained. But it's much easier to guess at words than to sound them out. And so if you give kids that option, they may never learn to sound the words out. They do go the easier route. That's right. Um, But what really needs to happen is that while we are teaching kids to sound out words in a systematic, coherent way, we need to be simultaneously building their knowledge of the world 
through listening, through having them listen to read alouds and discuss the content, not the skills, not let's learn how to make an inference, but what is actually going on in those books. The reason that's so important is that kids, for two reasons, really. One is kids need to hear written language read aloud because written language is almost always more complex than spoken language. And if kids are eventually going to understand written language when they're reading on their own, they need to become familiar with the, the particular syntax, like maybe the passive voice, the particular vocabulary, like words like although, that you don't hear in conversation, that you only hear in written language. The other reason why it's important to be reading aloud to those kids and, and preferably not just on random topics, but spending a couple of weeks on the same topic to give them a chance to absorb information and vocabulary. The, the, the thing to bear in mind is that kids can take in a lot more sophisticated information through listening than through their own reading. And that's true on average through middle school. And if they are listening uh, to texts that, that introduce sophisticated concepts, sophisticated vocabulary, and then discussing them using that vocabulary, that information, that vocabulary gets lodged in their long-term memories. And when they go to read about that topic, they will be in a much better position to understand what they're reading because the information will be at least somewhat familiar. Uh, so that's what we really need to do. We need to do both of those things simultaneously, but on different tracks. We can't limit kids to get gaining knowledge from what they can decode themselves because that's going to hold them back. That's not the way to build their knowledge. I've got another question for you, and it's based on building knowledge, of course. Is building knowledge a bigger issue now, especially after students have been outside the classroom for so long due to the COVID pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, we know that the roots of this knowledge gap lie in students' experiences outside school. Basically, you know, kids who have more highly educated parents, it's not really about poverty per se. If, if you know, if your parents are highly educated but don't have a, have a lot of income, you'll probably be okay. But there just aren't that many families like that out there in our society. And so um, if, if you, you're coming from a highly educated family where you're getting exposed to sophisticated vocabulary and knowledge of the world at home, that puts you ahead. Um, if you're not, you're going to rely on school for that. And of course, with this current situation, kids are home 24 seven. And so the kids whose parents have more resources are in a much better position to be, even if it's not planned or deliberate, they're in a much better position to be acquiring knowledge and vocabulary at home and setting themselves up for success in reading comprehension. Whereas the other kids, you know, the kids whose parents don't speak English or whatever, uh, you know, they are unfortunately falling farther and farther behind every day. So this may, I, I mean, I felt a tremendous sense of urgency about this issue when I was researching and writing the book and, you know, for the past year, but in the past few months, my sense of urgency has just skyrocketed because uh, we cannot afford to waste any more time. And there are things that schools can do even in a remote learning situation to build kids' knowledge. And what I discovered, I, I talked uh, to a bunch of parents about their experiences with remote learning, and they told me, you know, what's coming home from school 
is even more uh, sort of watered down and more focused on reading comprehension skills Mm-hmm. even than what goes on in the classroom and their yes. kids don't want to do those worksheets. They, these are like passages on topics they don't know anything about. The questions sometimes are so easy, they're ridiculous or they don't make sense. You know, find the main idea of a passage that doesn't have a main idea. And what these parents have told me is that they either junked the worksheets or they supplemented the worksheets that by, you know, nourishing their kids' curiosity, finding things online or, or books that that were about things their kids were interested in and focusing on that content. Schools can do that too, you know, just get some books together and have teachers record read-alouds and ask kids questions about the content rather than the skills. And I imagine that will do a lot, especially with younger kids, for their motivation and engagement. Great. Uh, That oral language plays such a key role, that opportunity for engagement and discussion and collaboration. You mentioned in your work that the Common Core state standards make a bad situation worse. How is that so? Well, I want to qualify that. I think the the Common Core standards have been a double-edged sword. They have some good things have resulted from them and some not so good things. The, the basic problem is that if you look at the standards, like any ELA, virtually any ELA standards, they look like a list of skills. You know, uh, students will be able to connect a claim to evidence in the text or whatever. And they don't tell you what text. They, they don't talk about content at all. Uh, there, However, there's some language in the supplemental materials to the Common Core that says, you know, if you want kids to meet these standards, you have to start building their knowledge early using a content-focused, coherent curriculum. Very few people have read that language in the supplemental materials. And so uh, what has happened in many, most places, I would say, is a kind of a marriage of the pre-existing comprehension skills focused approach with other aspects of the Common Core that were more obvious, like the the call to have elementary students read more nonfiction. Uh, and so we've had the new skills, like the, the sort of the skill of reading nonfiction or text features, the skill of identifying nonfiction text features. But it, it you know, the, the comprehension skills focused approach doesn't work that great when kids are just reading simple fiction, but it worked better there than it will if they're trying to read nonfiction. Why? Because nonfiction, generally speaking, assumes more background knowledge than fiction, especially children's fiction. And so, you know, just applying these skills, if you may, you may know what a glossary is or a table of contents, these text features, but that's not going to help you understand a book about the solar system if you've never heard of it. However, I will. And so this has been going on in a lot of classrooms, uh, this this skills focused approach combined with more nonfiction. And that's a, a big problem. And that's what was going on with this article about Brazil that I saw this first grader trying to read or not trying to read. Um, the, the other side of that, the other edge of that sword, the good part of the Common Core is that some people did read that language in the supplemental materials about how you need a knowledge building curriculum to meet these standards. And that has led to the development of six or eight elementary literacy curricula that focus on content rather than these largely illusory skills and that do aim to build kids knowledge about 
history, geography, science, the arts, etc. So it's really, um, you know, there's been some bad stuff and some good stuff. Well, I tell you, your insight into looking beyond the standards themselves, um, I, I applaud you for that because, yes, the appendices are chock full of really, really good, solid information. Um, there's a chapter in the Knowledge Gap titled Unbalanced Literacy, and you refer to Lucy Calkins quite often. Why do you think concepts of balanced literacy continue to thrive in the U.S.? Well, that's a very good question. And I should start by saying that the the term balanced literacy is very slippery. It means different things to different people. But, um, you know, basically it, it came out of the what has been known as the reading wars, you know, in the 90s. Uh, on one side, there was whole language. And this was really about phonics, not so much about comprehension. The whole language people, the, that view was you don't really need to systematically teach phonics, that kids will just pick up decoding ability if you surround them with wonderful children's literature. And then on the other side were the folks who said, no, yeah, actually most kids or at least half of kids are really not going to become good readers unless you teach them systematically how to decode words. Um, And then balanced literacy was meant to be presented as a a sort of truce, a compromise between these two warring camps. We would combine the best of phonics, some phonics with good children's literature. But the leaders of that balanced literacy movement, and Lucy Calkins was one of them, really came out of the whole language movement. And when it came to decoding, certainly, uh, they really did not fully embrace the idea that you need to teach phonics systematically. And um, so that's you know, I think that is really beginning to change. I think there's there's more pushback now on the decoding side of things. And even Lucy Calkins has to some extent, you know, embraced phonics, although there are those, and I'm not an expert on the decoding side, but there are those who say that, uh, you know, the way she is presenting phonics is not going to work that well. On the other side, what happened with balanced literacy was this embrace of comprehension skills and strategies, which the whole language movement had rejected. Uh, they, they did not really believe in that originally. But teachers, what I discovered when I was uh, doing some research, I, I, I wanted to figure out, like, well, how did this come about that the successor, essentially, to whole language came to embrace teaching these reading comprehension skills and strategies that whole language had rejected. And it, it seems to have been that uh, teachers began to feel like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. You know, I'm just like my kids, I'm just letting them loose in a room full of books. Shouldn't I be teaching them something? And they stumbled upon some research really that started in the 1970s on reading comprehension strategies. Uh, what do expert readers do? Like, what are they doing when they really want to understand something? And can we teach inexpert readers to do that. And and that's what they were trying to do. Eventually that got merged with a kind of comprehension skills focus that you used to see in the basal readers and that the, the whole language people had rejected. But as to why, so, so now, I mean, I, I say that balanced literacy basically is some combination of teaching phonics in a way that doesn't work very well and 
a, a big focus on these comprehension skills and strategies and saying it doesn't really matter. We're teaching reading comprehension. We do not really need to build kids' knowledge. We need to focus on getting them to master these skills and strategies. And, you know, I think there are a number of reasons for why that's persisted. But one is that um, in some ways, it's easier than, you know, building kids knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. You can just teach the same quote unquote skills and strategies year after year. You don't really need to, as a teacher, you don't need to have any particular content knowledge. Um, You know, I, I think that that's definitely one reason. But, you know, of course, there's teacher training, there's the, the materials that teachers are given, they are all oriented in this way. So even if a teacher wants to do something different, it's kind of hard to do that. Right. Um, so you gave us a clear summary of balanced literacy and what it is, a nice history to go along with it. And, but we, something we do understand is that it's not tied to the science of reading. How does building knowledge tied to the science of reading? Well, that's a good question. And I I first want to unpack that term, the science of reading. It's usually meant, what what is meant by that is what the National Reading Panel came up with in the year 2000. This blue ribbon panel was really convened to end the so-called reading wars. And the focus was mostly on phonics. That was the focus of the reading wars. So they they looked at a whole bunch of studies um, that only ones that met their stringent criteria. And when it came to phonics, they came down pretty firmly on the side of, yep, you need to teach phonics. Um, They identified also, though, you know, five, four other pillars of early literacy. So the total of five pillars of early literacy. Um, The fifth one was comprehension. And uh, they looked at a bunch of studies of reading comprehension strategies that in that showed you if you do a a six-week study and you teach kids a particular reading strategy that that you can boost their outcomes on a test at the end of six weeks um and that so sometimes when people say oh the science of reading they may mean we should teach those reading comprehension strategies because look at the evidence The problem with that National Reading Panel report when it comes to comprehension is that they really overlooked a whole body of knowledge on a body of evidence on the importance of knowledge to comprehension. They didn't mention that at all. And the other problem is, yes, so, you know, there are these studies. I'm not denying that. But those studies lasted six weeks. And we teach reading comprehension skills and strategies, including a bunch for which the National Reading Panel found no evidence. We do that not just for six weeks. We do that month after month, year after year. There is absolutely no evidence to support that. And so um, what I the phrase that I prefer to use rather than science of reading, because there are is that ambiguity and that confusion about comprehension there. Um, I prefer to look at, to call it science of learning. And that really is, uh, comprehension is not just a matter of reading. It is, you know, inextricably linked to learning. The more you learn uh, about the world, the better a reader you are, the better comprehender you are. So um, there is that wider body of evidence, this science of learning that I think we really need to start looking at. 
Yeah, so it's all about gaining meaning from text. And of course, in order to gain that meaning, going right back to the idea of having that background knowledge to begin with. So we would advise educators to really focus on building that background for students so that when they encounter text, we can guide them through how we gain meaning. Interactive, oral language, discussion, collaboration. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And, you know, I do want to emphasize here that it is is not that you can never ask a kid a question like what's the main idea or whatever. It's a question of what you put in the foreground. And if you put the content in the foreground, that's when kids do start to develop that those abilities to to make connections and find the main idea and all those things we we do want them to do and that's that is part of making meaning from text but if you put those skills and strategies in the foreground as though they're completely they can be applied completely independent of knowledge that's when you run into trouble so we're looking at integration Mm -hmm. integration within okay So is building knowledge the answer then? I have a feeling you're going to tell me yes, Natalie. And if so, what do we do next to help fix the learning gap? How do we repair it? Well, the the most effective thing to do is to adopt and implement well uh, a, a, a curriculum that focuses on content. That, And as I mentioned, there are now six or eight such curricula out there. Um, they are organized, but they're all different. I mean, they cover different bodies of knowledge in different ways. And there's no one list of things that all kids need to learn. Um, but the important thing about these curricula is that they are organized by topics. They spend at least a couple of weeks on a topic and they all have teachers reading aloud to all students from the same complex text that those students, this is especially true in the early years, that those students could not read themselves and leading discussions about the content of those, those texts that are being read. Now, if you're in a school or in a system that hasn't adopted one of those curricula, uh, there is still quite a bit that individual teachers can do. They, they can, uh, you know, if you're using a basal reader in it, the questions are all about skills. You can come up with other questions that focus on the content. If the basal reader is pretty thin on content, as most of them are, bring in some additional texts that are related to whatever's in the basal reader and supplement it in that way. You know, it's that, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. It's going to be more of a burden on, on classroom teachers, and they're not going to be able to control you know, what kids learned last year and what they're going to learn next year. And that's a problem because building knowledge is a cumulative process that extends, you know, over years and across grade levels. But still, that's going to be better than than just focusing on the skills and strategies. And we could probably say um, the idea of thematic units, they help to build that knowledge as, as well as you were describing uh, what teachers can do, uh, what curricula are out there, that term came to mind. And teachers are very, very familiar with the idea of thematic units. Right. And I would just add one thing about, I mean, sometimes a thematic unit, I have seen themes in curricula that are things like, you know, childhood around the world or something pretty broad and vague. And that's a, that, that may not work very well because the objective is to have something that's defined enough that you are that repeating, not 
literally, but you were turning to the same concepts, the same vocabulary repeatedly, and that gives kids a chance to absorb that information. So I would just add that. Finally, if you could wave a magic wand and change anything in the world of education, what would you change and why? Well, I wish I did have that magic wand, um, but I I think I would have to say uh, teacher training, teacher education. Um, I, I think if we could get that more aligned to what scientists have discovered about how people learn, uh, it could make a tremendous difference as it is right now for, for sort of historical reasons, the way schools of education developed along a different path than the rest of academia. Um, there isn't much communication. There hasn't been much communication between, say, the Department of Psychology in a university and the School of Education. And they're different cultures, really. And so what happens is that in a, a developmental psychology course at, a, at the ed school, students will be learning something very different from what students in the psychology department are learning in, you know, the same course. And in fact, the students at the ed school may be learning things that actually go against what scientists have found about how kids learn. And if we could get that information in the hands of prospective teachers and and practicing teachers eventually, uh, it could make their job so much easier and it could make it so much easier for all kids to learn. Connecting their research to the educators who are educating the educators. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. Um, Well, Natalie, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Please share with our listeners how they can learn more about you and how they can follow you on social media and where can they buy your book, New to Paperback? Well, um, the probably uh, the best place to get more information is my website, nataliewexler.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Nat Wexler. Um, my, the book, which is, uh, has been out for a year, but is new in paperback, uh, is available, you know, where, wherever books are sold, I would say. So the usual suspects. Thank you, Natalie. This is Pam Austin bringing the best thought leaders in education directly to you. This has been an EdView 360 podcast produced by Voyager Sopris Learning. For additional thought-provoking discussions, sign up for our blog, webinar, and podcast series at voyagersopris.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and to help other people like you find our show. Thank you. Today's guest is not affiliated with Voyager Sopris Learning, nor does she endorse or make any representations or warranties regarding products associated with Voyager Sopris Learning.